0: Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. I'll begin with a question What is the ultimate measure of authentic Christian life and community? It's the cross. Christian life begins at the cross and proceeds by the cross. There's no other path than Calvary for a Christian life. And the irony is this, that in Christ, the way up is down. The way to glory is humility. And so throughout this series, we've been exploring the identity of the theology of the people of God through the book of 1 Peter. And we've been looking at seven statements about who we are, our group identity. And today, as we close this series, and next week we'll begin our um, Advent series, we learn that in a world of pride, we are a people of humility. We serve because we are Humble. The unmistakable mark of a life under the cross, I would say, is humility of the resurrection. But it's the humility of the cross that leads to the glory of the resurrection. So we're going to get into this as we read our final passage from 1 Peter, which is pretty much the close of the letter, and we're beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. So if you'd turn on your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen to follow as well. So, and this is the same word that began chapter four, therefore, it could also be translated. So this is a summarizing of the whole letter in a way. This is his final exhortation. He says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter was writing, as you know, he was writing in the midst and to an audience that was under the Roman Empire. They were under Roman rule. And so as we begin to talk about humility and God exalting us, what kind of people did the Romans tend to exalt and lift up? Well, if you've been to Rome, you can see it in the statues and the buildings and the, and the, the paintings. and the, They tended to lift up great warriors, great statesmen and rulers, like Caesar Augustus, for instance, who fought off all other pretenders to the, 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 the throne of the Roman Empire. And then he led armies on every frontier, northwest, east, south of the Roman Empire to subjugate vast swathes of people and, and, and territories. And then he went on to be known as this virtuous and generous ruler. And so it was all under the name of bringing civilizing virtue to all these peoples that they had the, the, had the good fortune of being conquered. <laughs> so at the heart of Rome, I think, despite what they said about themselves, I think what you see at the heart of Rome is this, this exaltation of pride and power. And once they had gained their desires, they used that same pride and power to craft an appearance, a, 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 an image of virtue, of generosity, of peace. And so when you look at every empire down the centuries, they've all virtually done the same thing. In fact, most empires since then have all consciously modeled themselves after Rome. All you gotta do is look at our architecture, right? It's all completely Roman, which was Greek before that, but anyway, every empire tells itself that what it's actually about is peace and virtue, right? But the reality is, is that from underneath, it's peace and virtue only at the tip of a sword. And so, the resulting message is clear. The flesh, as represented in, I think, the, the, the values of Rome, the flesh values pride, not as a vice, but as a virtue. And you don't have to look far to see this mentality today. We had a, we had a whole sermon on the topic of humility back in our joy series that was a really... Kind of a deep dive into the whole topic, but I'll just mention this. You don't have to look far to see the mentality of pride as a virtue around us. All you got to do is look at the people that we tend to exalt. The stories that we tend to tell, right? The songs that we tend to sing, they all, even though we tell ourselves that it's all about, you know, peace and virtue, deep down, we clearly believe that it's the ones who are proud and strong that are successful in the world. Proud people tend to be the ones rewarded. So we tell ourselves if you want to get ahead in life, you got to take charge. You got to take control. You got to let them know who's boss. Take care of yourself first. And you know, every movie hero these days says, I got this, right? (laughs) It's power and it's pride. And I think the thing about pride. Of course, if you looked at Genesis 3, pride is really at the heart of the first sin. And maybe even the story of Satan's fall from, from, from heaven was to do with pride. But pride is the most blinding of all sins because, because I think of all the sins, it probably is the easiest to dress up as virtue. And so Peter, the apostle, is writing this letter. And when you look at Peter's life, you know that he experienced this, he knew this more than most. So Peter was the first of the disciples to recognize, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Peter was the only one of them to walk on water with Jesus. He was the one ready to fight when they came to take him away. Peter was one of the, the, the three that had been in that highest of spiritual experiences, the transfiguration. But in the moment of his greatest testing, what happened? Pride. Maybe even the pride that all of those things and knowledge and experience that give him, pride actually led him to disown Jesus and turn his back on him. And so what Peter learned so painfully in his life story that you get, especially in the book of Mark, was this, authentic Christ-likeness is always cruciform. Cruciform meaning the shape of a cross authentic Christ-likeness is always shaped like a cross. And we may know our Bibles inside out. We may have the most beautiful moments of spiritual awakening and feel the love of God in our hearts. And we may go to the ends of the earth for, for his purposes. But in the end, if it doesn't lead us to a cross, we're simply not following on the same path that Jesus, Jesus went on. All those things may be good and godly and wonderful, but they're ultimately not Christian. They're not Christian because they don't lead to the place where where Christ led us. And we say it all the time, but, but we have to constantly remember Jesus is not just a religious teacher, He's not just a moral example. He's not just a guru that gives us these wonderful spiritual experiences. Jesus didn't come to just be those things. He came to die for us. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the the great German pastor and theologian and martyr, he said this famously, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come die. And Jesus said to the crowds who followed him, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him or her deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And later on in that same book in Luke, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, is not just a bad disciple. He says, they cannot be my disciple. And so here's the radical thing that Peter's saying. The Romans lifted up these great military heroes and generals. Peter is lifting up Jesus as our hero. What is he saying by that? It means that while the Roman path to glory is putting your enemies on a cross, he says the Christian path to glory is putting yourself on a cross. There is no other path than Calvary for an authentic Christian life. And as Jesus said, it's a daily picking up. This is not a once and done kind of thing. This is the shape of the entire walk with Jesus. And so do you want to, if you want a way to measure something, whether something is authentically Christian or not, it doesn't look like Caesar. It looks like a cross. And so our next point is this, that the unmistakable mark of a cruciform life is humility. Now, in the message that I just mentioned in our joy series, Pastor Bob defined humility, and I I think this is a good definition. He defined it as the ability to see oneself from God's perspective and be content with it. The ability to see oneself from God's perspective and be content with it. So as we're talking, we're not just talking about individual identity, we're talking about our group identity, how, do we, how are we to view ourselves as a community? And obviously community is made up of individuals, so we, we, we can't help but talk about how we see ourselves, each of us, how are, we, how are we meant to view ourselves? Well, on the one hand, you've got people who are caught up in all kinds of self-hatred, They look at the brokenness, they look at the sin of their lives, or maybe the the abuse, or the the racism, or the exclusion that they've suffered in life, and that is all that they can see about themselves. And so their self-image is wrapped up in self-hatred, and there's no room for love. Now, on the other hand, you've got people who've just completely swallowed the self-love movement, which says... I am completely good and worthy and wonderful and perfect just the way I am and I will not apologize. It's wrong for me to apologize for any part of me. And I always think, okay, now there's, there's an element of truth to that, of course, especially in reaction to self-hatred. But it always, if that's the only slice of the picture you get, it always leaves me thinking, well, where's sin in that picture? Because When I look at myself, I know that there's parts of my life that actually it's appropriate to not feel great about because they need to change, all right? And so both of these pictures, if you take either one of those pictures in isolation, both of them fail to give us an accurate picture of who we are. On the one hand, one of them denies our created goodness, if you fixate on the brokenness and the sin. And on the other hand, it denies our fallen and sinfulness if you only look at the self-love. And so, I like the words of John Stott, who was a pastor in the UK. He said, standing before the cross, we see simultaneously our worth and our unworthiness since we perceive both the greatness of his love in dying and the greatness of our sin in causing him to die. So when you're in the shadow of the cross, how can you be proud and self-righteous in light of Jesus dying on a cross? And yet at the same time, How can you look at Jesus dying on the cross for you and doubt your value, your worth in God's eyes? And I think the only way you can look at the cross and feel, you know, either completely unworthy or completely worthy is by pride. Tim Keller puts it well. I like this. He says, the cross shows us that we are far more sinful and broken than we ever dared imagine. And yet we're far more loved than we ever dared hope. And that's exactly, again, what you see in Peter's life. right? Because in that moment of testing, Peter famously turns away from Jesus, disowns him three separate times. And at the cross, that's what he wept bitterly about. But then you fast forward a few weeks and you see, Jesus restores Peter again three distinct times after the resurrection. It's probably my favorite part of of scripture. Jesus is barbecuing on the beach. So it's already, just that would be great. But then he has this intimate moment with Peter where he restores, for each time that he denied him, he restores him. the words that we encounter in that passage, I don't have time to read it, but go back and read John 21 where, where Jesus encounters Peter that way, and you see all of that interaction echoed in our passage right here. Because Jesus tells him, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Then tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. And so Peter received that affirmation from Jesus, that calling from Jesus that he was to tend the flock with love and humility. And so as we come to this passage in in Peter's letter, we see how the advice that he's giving comes right out of his own life. And effectively, he's saying this, he's saying, my witness, he says, I'm a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And by witnessing Jesus' suffering on the cross for me, it showed me how actually broken and sinful that I am. And that I must deny, not him, but I must deny myself. And then Peter says, I'm not just a witness of his sufferings, I'm a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. That I, I, I witnessed his glorious Resurrection. And that by that, Jesus showed me I must affirm the calling and my createdness in myself. And when you hold these two things in tension, we're finally able to see an accurate picture of who we are. And so this is how you can sum it up. Cross-shaped humility bridges self-denial and self-affirmation. Cross-shaped humility, it blends, it bridges the self-denial of the cross with the self-affirmation of the resurrection. And it's only there that we get a full picture of who we are that accounts for the goodness that we know is within us and yet also the brokenness that we know that we can't deny. So, okay. Okay. Cross-shaped humility bridges self-denial and self-affirmation. How does this apply to us as a community? Well, this is what Peter goes on to do. Peter applies it in two ways. All right? He says, first of all, this Christ-like, this cruciform humility, it transforms our leadership. It transforms power dynamics. And secondly, it transforms the anxieties of each generation that so often rise up in pride. Right? And you're going to see what I mean by each of those things. But first of all, let's turn to the next point, that Christ-like humility transforms leadership. Now, I realize we're not at a leadership conference or anything like that, so, so there's some of us here who, who feel a calling or have been placed in a position of leadership influence, but there's many of us who have not or, or, or have not yet and I think it's still important for us to all look at this, whether you call yourself a leader or, or not, because if you're a leader, you, know how, you need to know how to act. And if you're a, in, a, in a following position, you need to know how to spot authentic leadership. Because there is such a thing as abuse. And we're all too familiar with that. Just watch the news. <laughs> Okay, so Peter applies the fact that we are people of humility first and foremost to leadership, okay? And he, he addresses the elders, and literally that just means the old people, but he's using that as a title because at this time in the church, already local churches were being governed by people called elders. And Typically, that meant older people, but not always, because you also see Timothy, who was a younger man who was an elder. This is the way that the Jewish Sanhedrin worked. So elder, first of all, he's talking about a leadership position. Now, when you talk about leadership, all sorts of things pop up into your head, right? We are absolutely obsessed as a culture with leadership. Especially in the evangelical world. It's interesting, there's a, there's a tool that you can use for marketing where you can find out who is searching particular terms all right? And if you put the word leadership into this tool, almost everything that comes up is, is somehow towards a Christian audience. Like, the majority of things, like books and articles and all these things, it, they're, they're written towards church audiences. And so, there's this fascination. Um, I don't know if it's a new fascination, but it's certainly a strong one right now, this obsession with leadership. But here's the thing. Peter offers us a view of leadership that turns much of what we understand by leadership on its head. And it transforms what you would call power dynamics inside out. All right? But what may or may not be disappointing to you is this. Okay, Peter does it in a way that's far too conservative for the revolutionaries. And it's far too revolutionary for the conservatives. (laughs) What do I mean by that? Well, you see, as as Peter addresses leaders, why would I say it's too conservative for revolutionaries? Why? Because Peter doesn't get rid of hierarchies. Did you notice that? He recognizes that there are some who are elders. They are placed in a position to shepherd, and that word shepherd could also be translated rule. Ancient kings and rulers were conceived of as shepherds in the Middle East. Let's exercise their shepherding position. And so, what does that mean? Well, earlier on in the letter, Peter says, we are a royal priesthood, right? We're all part of the body of Christ. We're all brothers and sisters, and yet, it's sometimes disappointing to find out that the kingdom of God is not the democracy that we sometimes wish it were. I'm not saying democracy's wrong or anything like that, okay? (laughs) I'm talking about what the Bible tells us about how the family of God is to be arranged, governed, okay? So, on the one hand, it's, it's too conservative for, you know, the revolutionary standpoint, but on the other hand, Peter revolutionizes what leadership actually looks like. And it's completely transformed by humility. Humility over pride. And so, I, I would call this not only servant leadership, but cruciform leadership, Leadership that looks like a cross. And and he shows us what this looks like by way of three contrasts. Okay, He says, he commands the, the elders, shepherd the flock. One, not under compulsion, but willingly. Two, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And three, not by domineering those in your charge, but by example. And so, The point is this, cruciform leadership is willing, eager, and by example. So first of all, let's get into these. First of all, cruciform leadership, authentic Christ-like leadership, is not under compulsion, but willingly. What is he talking about there? Well, a couple things. I think first of all, he's showing us that leaders within the church do not make themselves leaders, they don't select themselves, rather they're ordained into that by a calling of the Holy Spirit and by the affirmation of a local church. That's the pattern that we see in Scripture. And of course, okay, this doesn't mean that anyone who wants to be should never be, because Paul tells us it's it's a good thing to desire it, and then he goes on to say, but you ought to know what you're getting into, (laughs) But here's the thing, okay, I think he's specifically saying this to his group, because remember this letter is speaking to people who were facing persecution, facing, facing suffering for being part of the church, and so in that kind of setting, imagine if you're in a persecuted nation today, if you suddenly become the leader of that group, you're putting yourself out there for greater persecution. Typically, they go after the leaders, Okay, And so, Peter's saying the temptation, when that's the case, and when you are chosen for a role such as that, sometimes the temptation is for pride to rise. And for you to begin to do your leadership as a, as a burden. A burden that you, you, you have to do because people are expecting you to do it. They chose me to do it, I guess I gotta do it. And I think what he's pointing out is there, there's, there's a kind of pride that looks like martyrdom. <laughs> but it's pride. And so Peter's saying, look, if you're, if you're an elder or you're a pastor, and I, I think by extension this goes into other leaderships within the, the church, no one's putting a gun to your head. <laughs> Unless they are. But <laughs> it's not something to be complaining about all the time. Yes, it's challenging. Yes, you do put yourself out there for greater judgment. On the one hand, the scripture tells us that. Beware if, you're, if you want to teach because you're going to come under stricter judgment. And I feel that every time I step up here. Especially realizing that, that the things that I preach, that we preach... They're preaching to the person that's right here too. But treating your ministry and your leadership as something that you're forced to do, that you're, you're a martyr by doing, it's, it's not admirable. It's actually prideful, Peter says. Why would he say that? Because Jesus, in John chapter 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd. I, I lay my life down for the sheep. I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus was willing. He was willing. So that's the first contrast. The second contrast, he says, not for shameful gain, but be eager. I'm looking at this, I'm like, well, I don't see how those things are... Opposites. But I think what Peter's saying is this. The second contrast shows us that church leadership is not about gaining wealth and privilege and perks for yourself. If there's something in you that says, man, I want to become the leader because then I get to tell people what to do or I get to, you know, sit in the front seats or I get to, you know, whatever it is, that's not what it's about, Peter says. And yes, okay, let's not go to the other extreme because the Bible does say church leaders who lead well should be paid, especially, Paul says, those who labor in preaching and teaching, don't muzzle the ox, he says. But he says, this is not about a paycheck. In fact, the way I see it is that the paycheck is the way of freeing that person up to be able to pursue their calling without having to worry about putting food on the table. That's... that's, the point of it. And it's also an opportunity for a church to honor uh, those who serve them. And so, one of the things that I, I think is a good test, it's a test that I apply to myself as well. Would I be willing to do this work even if I wasn't being paid? If I had to work two jobs, if I had to do this, if I had to do that, you know, and I'm not saying that that's right to do or to expect of someone, but it is something within our own hearts that we can test and check ourselves. We get this from our good shepherd Jesus, who said this He said, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I'm not just a hired hand. Jesus was eager to do the work, whether or not it was paid. Thirdly, he gives us this third contrast. He says, not domineering, but being an example, all right? So one of the things, and and if you've ever been to the Middle East, and I even saw this, this practice is in in Spain. So Southern Europe, I guess you also see this is that ancient shepherding was not about driving the sheep. The shepherds actually walk out in front of the sheep. I've seen this in Spain. If you go to to rural parts of, of Spain, you see this. Shepherds out with their staff, walking in front of the sheep and the sheep follow them. And so this is the picture that Peter's giving us here, that that it's not about driving the sheep where you think they should go. It's about going there first yourself, and they follow you. Reminds me of Hebrews 13, where it says, let us follow Jesus outside the camp. And it's talking about the place of sacrifice, right? Jesus never asked us to do anything that he didn't do first himself. And he told us plainly, Christian leadership is not like the leadership of the world. It's not. When, when the, the, the two sons of Zebedee came to Jesus and said, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Let us sit on your, le- your left hand and your right hand. And, and Jesus said, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not how things work around here. First of all, are you willing to, to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said, we are not really knowing what they were getting into. And he says, well, actually, you will. (laughs) But that's still not the way things work around here. And then he taught the disciples about, look, your your Roman overlords, their whole MO is lording it over you, but that is not the way things work around here. The greatest among you will be like the youngest. And if you want to be great, be a servant of all. And so we look... It's so tempting to look at the world's way of leadership and think that if we want to get somewhere, if we want to get something done, well, that's just how you got to operate. And I think this applies outside of just the church context, okay? We don't lord it over people. It might seem like it gets stuff done. It might seem pragmatic. It might seem even admirable a man of action, you know, to get stuff done. But does it look like a cross? That's my test. Does it look like a cross? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. He laid his life down first. He didn't ask us to lay down our lives for him first. He did it first. And so, if you're in any kind of leadership or God's, you, know, you sense that God might have that calling on your life at some point, I think the danger is that just like the Romans, we can project this image of virtue and peace and yet the whole thing underneath is about building this, this little empire for myself. An empire that's really based on self-promotion and subjugation. And that's something... They say power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? you got to watch for that. And I think that applies not only, again, within the church context, but it applies to your business context. It applies to the family context. It applies in the marriage context. We can be so blind to that, to our own little empire building, and we dress it up as if, no, this is... This is the way a man of God is supposed to act. Look at Jesus. Look at him if you want to know how a man of God is supposed to act. Look at him if you want to know how a husband is supposed to act. He's the bridegroom of the bride. He is our hero. If you're a husband, if you're a a father, if you're a leader, if you're, you know, I'm talking to men right now, but applies to all of us, of course. Okay, I better, I better get to our last point here, okay? <laughs> I think Peter's saying in all of that talking to leadership, he's saying, leaders, let us beware of dressing our pride up as virtue. Let us follow our crucified leader to the same place that he went, the cross. Because that's the path of true glory. Okay, are you with me? All right, do we have a couple more minutes? What are you going to say, right? <laughs> I just want to finish up with this because I think this applies really in, in a very interesting way that took me by surprise for our particular moment in the life of this church, and, and it's this. Christ-like humility heals generational anxieties. Christ-like humility heals generational anxieties. What do I mean? Well, the next place that Peter turns is he says, likewise, you who are younger... And so here, you know, in the same way that that elders can just mean older people, now he directs himself to younger. And so I think he's got generations in view now. All right? And what he says to the younger, he's got a lot of things to say to the older people. He says one thing to the younger people, and he says this. Submit. Your favorite word. (laughs) How does pride work? All right. How does pride work its way into how young and old relate to each other? This is what I think has something kind of prophetic to say to us right now. And I think it's key to our community. So if, if you've been around at all, you, you've heard me repeat this phrase everybody in the game as part of our vision for the decade. And it's a vision that has begun to work itself out in our family ministry with, with the youth and the kids and the, the primetime ministry. And it's, it's beautiful, it's exciting, but there's so much more work to be done in, in fleshing out that vision, and especially as we navigate a season of leadership transition, all right? And on that note, I wanna share a prophetic word. Some of you may have been at the prophetic night we had with Dwayne White a couple weeks ago. Well, the next day, Dwayne shared a prophetic word over us as a church, as NC4. And, and I want to read you what it said. He said, For those who have been around a long time, as well as those who are new, there's a merger and a marrying of, the, of Holy Spirit collaboration that's coming. It's going to be beautiful because it's going to be fresh and new. It's not going to be the young and the new doing something completely different than this old thing that was done. But it's also not going to be, Oh, we got to hold on to everything the way it's been. It's going to be this beautiful tapestry of now. It's specific instructions for now, and there's, going to ju- there's just going to be a knowing from any generation, from every generation, of this is it. This is right. And it's not going to be an argument of, we've never done it this way before, or we've got to do it this new way. It's going to have nothing to do with that. It's going to be this beautiful instruction directly from the Holy Spirit, and everybody's going to see the picture and say, that's it. Let's build this. Let's paint this. Let's make this. Amen. Amen. And I say, amen, amen. to that word. <laughs> That's exciting to me. Okay? And it's in line with the way we felt the Lord leading us. But it, it, to get there, it's going to require a lot of generational humility. Okay? So what does this passage have to say to us? Well, we're in this moment of, of change and, and generational transition. And I think what Peter does here is he speaks to the particular anxieties that, that can rise up in young and old. Okay? What, do I, what am I talking about? Well, what's the anxiety that can sometimes rise up in older generations? They begin to say, the young people just don't honor they're elders. The young people just don't honor us the way we deserve. And so, you know, it's kind of like kids these days-ism. Right? What do younger people tend to complain about? Those old people just don't listen to us. When are they going to give us a chance? All right, so I think old, the older generation fears not being given their due. And the younger generation's fears not being given their chance. And you know what? They're not necessarily crazy fears because both of those things happen quite a lot. And what happens is when when we fear that they're going to happen, we double down, we put up these walls of pride, and that creates this untold strife between generations. Right? I'm sure... You may even think of situations within your own family or your workplace or whatever it is that you can see these kinds of dynamics at work. But Peter, has, Peter says, look, this is not who we are. We serve one another because we're people of humility. And if we keep an eye on Jesus' return, what, what Jason described as the, the eschatological horizon, if we keep our eyes that Jesus' return is just over that horizon and we daily pick up our crosses, we find that those anxieties begin to quiet down. Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, in humility. And when you do that, what's, what's the, what does he apply to elders and to youngers? He says, elders, when you keep Jesus' return in mind and you daily pick up your cross, he says, don't fear. You will receive your unfading crown of glory. The due that you do in fact deserve for your service, you will in fact receive. And you'll receive it from the chief shepherd, the one who really knows all that you sacrificed, the one that really knows all that you gave. And all this time, he's the one you've been serving, not your posterity, not just your kids and the next generations. You've been serving him. And you know what? Even if your kids don't Shower you with gratitude for all that you've done for them. Even if the next generation doesn't recognize your years of sacrificial service, sometimes they do, and we thank God for those, but even if they don't, He will. And you will receive your unfading crown of glory. So keep your eyes on His return and pick up your cross. And to the younger generation, Peter says, Don't fear, don't be proud. Do what is hard for you to do at your age and submit. Be patient and trust. And I think that this instruction is, is, is pointed towards young people. He says, he will exalt you at the proper time. He will exalt you at the proper time. And so NC4, I want to sum this up and I want to sum up our series by reading back the statements, the affirmations that are true of us in the resurrection. And I give you this charge, as a local people, as a local body of the global body of Christ, don't let the world dictate who you are and how you act. Look to him. That's where we find out who we are and that's where we find out how to act as his people. This is who we are. So would you stand with me? And we're going to put a summary of all the affirmations that have gone through this series up on the screen. And if you're online, you can do this with us as well. And I want us to to read this out together, okay? While the nations despair, the people of Jesus are a people of hope. In a world of desecration of people and things, the people of Jesus are a people of holiness. In a culture of pettiness, the people of Jesus are a people of maturity. In an environment of disdain, the people of Jesus are a people of honor. In a world that avoids pain, the people of Jesus suffer for the sake of righteousness. In the face of human self-centeredness, the people of Jesus are a people of stewardship. And our last one, in a world that rewards pride, the people of Jesus are a people of humility. And say this with me, this is who we are. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that in the light of the cross, Jesus, we see both how broken and sinful and and needing of a savior we are, but Lord Jesus, we also see how much you loved us and valued us. Lord, would that vision transfix our attention? Would it transform our prideful arrogance into Christ-like humility? Jesus, that that would spread through our community. Lord, that young would humbly submit, knowing, Lord, that at the right time you will exalt them, and that old would be willingly serving and eager and and not taking a domineering approach, Lord, but would be humble, Jesus, as you as the good shepherd were humble, knowing that when you return they will receive their unfading crown of glory. Jesus, we thank you for these truths of who we are. Would they seep deep down into our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you work them out into our lives? And we pray all this in the name and to the glory of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.